Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the old market in Hove. Please welcome a man who is wearing his wedding suit and has just remembered why he hasn't worn this for five years. It's Richard Herring. Thank you very much. Hello. Hello, Hove. Uh, welcome to the show. This is Richard Herring's Let's Start Trampolining podcast. It's, um, it's a new podcast where I'm just going to try and uh, start trampolining with the guests at the beginning see how it works out. You've got to have a gimmick these days. There's so many podcasts, you've got to get a new gimmick. Uh, but I was hanging out on the uh, British Airways i360 <laughs> that has lost uh, £3.8 million this year. And a third... It's got a third of the visitors have gone. It's gone down a third number of visitors. There was two other people on there, and they called it Rahalastapa. So I don't know if that's gonna, <laughs> don't know if that's gonna catch on. Um, I was quite interested in. I haven't been on actually, really, in real life. The uh, British Airways i360. It's like the London Eye, but it's not as good. Uh, and um, uh, I went on TripAdvisor to read the one-star reviews of it, which, to be fair, aren't the majority. Uh, but one of them said, "If I wanted a view as a soaring bird, I'd fly." If I want ascending thrill from height, I'd visit the Eiffel Tower. I mean, not if you're in Brighton, though, mate. Just, come on, be fair. Uh, and then somebody else says, uh, similar to the London Eye, uh, you'll not come in your pants, but enjoyable in its own way. <laughs> I mean, if you're expecting to come in your pants on a tourist attraction, your expectations are too high. That was a one-star review. I didn't come in my pants at all. I had to get my penis out and masturbate myself to... Orgasm. And we are in Hove, of course, beautiful Hove, uh, the, the, which you'll know has a very funny motto at the town of Hove. Uh, we wish we were proper Brighton, uh, but <laughs> at least we're not Portslade Village. So that's, uh, that's, um, that's, their, that's their funny. Right, I'm not going to do too much messing around at the start because we, we're, uh, we're pressed for time. This is a bonus extra show we put in because of the huge demand. Uh, if you're listening in the Brighton area, I'll be back on the 15th of September at the Theatre Royal. Um, uh, my guest this week is probably best known for her appearance on the Body Shocking Show. That's why we're all here to see it. Will you please welcome Angela Barnes, ladies and gentlemen. Come in. Hello. Hello. Ah. The Body Shocking Show, I remember what that. What was The Body Shocking Show? It was on Channel 5, so it was obviously brilliant. Um, <laughs> it was a show about people who'd done insane things to their bodies. So people who'd... Like, uh, the one that sticks in my mind, it was a long time ago, the one, there was a guy who'd had his Achilles heel pierced. Okay. And it had gone so badly wrong, he ended up in a wheelchair, and it was really hard to feel sorry for him. <laughs> it was really hard. But I remember, I remember sitting down with the, the director beforehand, and they were sort of showing us the... the clips of things that we were going to look at we had to talk about and it was people who'd had weird piercings and it was this Japanese craze of uh, they're called bagel heads I don't know if you said, they inject I think it's like saline solution into their foreheads to make their foreheads look like bagels yeah. and stuff like that and then just, she just flipped over to the next one and it was Angelina Jolie's knees and I, she said, has she got saggy knees? It's like, she, what, fuck off? Like, she's allowed to have saggy knees. She's a woman in her 40s. I'm not taking the piss out of that. She hasn't done that to herself. Yeah, That's so. really, yeah. 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 
You should have walked out there and then. I should have done, but I needed the money, Rich. Yeah, fair so, enough. You know. <laughs> so, you know, this, you, you've had an amazing rise to success. I came and did a gig for you when you were... A Before I started doing stand-up. Before you were doing stand-up. And it feels like only yesterday that was. And yes. now look at you. 2008. It was great. I remember it was when you were doing Hitler Moustache. Right. And you came and did a preview in, uh, at the Farm Tavern in Hove, just down the road from here. I used to run a little night called The Funny Farm in the yes, tiny sorry. little room upstairs. And we somehow contravening all health and safety rules, <laughs> got about 65 people in that room. And, and you were testing out for the first night, I remember, the little Hitler moustaches that you, you gave people at oh, the yes, end. Yeah. But you, these, it was the first time you'd done it. You bought ones that gave everyone a rash. Yes, yeah. And so by the end, everyone did have a Hitler moustache <laughs> that they couldn't get rid of for about a week. <laughs> it, was a, it was a deliberate move on my part. <laughs> Luckily, I never got sued. I think at the end we used um, like Velcro. I just got a lot of Velcro tape that we we cut up. Right. Yeah. But yeah, some people still had an allergic reaction to that. <laughs> just went, yeah, bad luck. It was it was the good old days of the two thousands. You get away with all sorts back then. <laughs> you give people terrible. And so, what were, were you planning at that point to do stand up, or was that that? Uh... No, not at all. It was um, my so yeah, that would have been two thousand and eight, and my dad died that year in the summer. Uh, very suddenly, and he used to come to all the shows. He was at your show probably, and, and used to come along. It and wasn't always... the it wasn't the moustache that killed him. Yeah, it was him. actually. Oh, I, don't... I thought I'd wait till now to tell you, Rich. <laughs> um, I brought my lawyer, and <laughs> no, he um, uh, and he always used to say, "What well, you know, you love comedy. Why don't you get up and have a go?" And I was like, oh, "Don't be stupid. I couldn't do that." Then after he died, I just thought, oh, "Life's short, isn't it?" It was sixty, right. you know, it's no age really. And um, so I signed up. I did the Jill Edwards comedy course here in Brighton at yeah. Comedia. And I thought, well, I'll give it a go there. So the problem was, because I was booking a comedy night, I knew loads of comedians. So I didn't want to go out there and make a complete arse of myself in front of people I knew. So I thought, I'll do a little course. That'd be a safe way to do it. And yeah. that was that. It's amazing. Well, I remember, because I then I heard you, it was, was 2011, the new actor, the BBC new yeah, actor. Yeah, yeah, 2011. Because I was, whatever tour that was, I was driving around and driving home from gigs, when that, or on to gigs when that, when that was on. So I was right. kind of cheering you on through the stages oh, of that. And then, and then you kind of ended up winning, which was, fant was fantastic. So that was obviously the big break to win the... Oh, the yeah. I mean, I wasn't supposed to win that. I was in a final with Joe Lysett, for fuck's sake. I... <laughs> And, and it was really funny because it was live on Radio 2 and um, I'm, I'm hard of hearing, right? So I wear hearing aids and um, I was backstage. So very often if I'm backstage, I can't hear what's going on on stage. And they didn't have a relay right. at the venue we were in. And uh, Patrick Kilty was hosting it and it was live on air. And uh, they announced the winner and I just shook Joe's hand and went, well done, mate. And he was like, you stupid bitch. And pushed me, <laughs> to push me out. And I was like, oh, and there's a video on YouTube somewhere. I came out, I chipped over a mic cable. I just so wasn't supposed to happen. <laughs> well, it's great. And so what did that lead you? Was part of that getting like a radio show or was it? Was no, it, I mean, the year after that, they introduced that as part of the oh, prize. No. I didn't even get any money, mate. I got a lump of perspex and a well done. That's what I got. But... Um, no, I did, I did that because I didn't have an agent or anything then. I'd only been an open spot for about 18 months. So I didn't actually start properly till 2010. Yeah. And um, yeah, so then I had agents sort of getting in touch and it was like, oh Christ, this is real now. This is, I still had a day job. Yeah. You know, and, and um, yeah, so I, I sort of took it from there. Because it's what strikes me and, and especially with your generation of, uh, of that, that generation of standards, it's so difficult to get your head above that parapet really and there's so many people trying to do stand-up yeah. so it's quite a rare story for someone to go right I'll start doing comedy in 2009 and then I'll yeah. be in 2011 and then look, 
as far as uh, I shouldn't really bring up another podcast, but I did, when I was still sort of early on, just after I won it, I did Stu Goldsmith's Comedians Comedian podcast. We recorded an episode. Right. And he was like, I can't put this out. It gives people too much hope. <laughs> he was like, open spots, listen to this. They're going to be like, oh, it's easy. You start and 18 months later you win a thing and then it's all fine. It's like, no, it's not like that. But, um, it isn't like that. So it's, it's, it's amazing. I think I had, I mean, I was 33 when I started doing stand-up. Yeah. So I think, you know, in my head, I was a bit, right, I've got to get on with this, you know, because um, I'm not, 20 and and that's the weird thing you say my generation of stand-up i'm in a really weird position because the people that are in what i call my school year yeah. of stand-ups you know that started at the same time as me most of them are a decade or more younger than me yeah whereas the people that are my age are sort of a decade or more ahead of the game than me so i'm in this weird sort of middle ground of not being one of the cool young kids but also not being an old <laughs> yes. you know old guard so yeah, yeah. it's weird you know, it does yeah i guess in your in my mind i kind of would still place you and with the, yeah with that that generation but i but i similarly because i came back to stand up in 2004 really and i didn't really i did stand up very early on but then i kind of gave didn't want to do it on my own yeah so i'm you know i'm sort of affiliated with that guy russell howard was just sort of getting big you know on the circuit at that point yeah. when i started so that i've got the same thing from this much older guy <laughs> yeah, who came like, came back to, to school but yeah it's interesting but it's interesting to see and it'd be it's it's it is sort of remarkable that, 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 that uh, someone can break through. I, I often just think I wouldn't, if I was starting now, I wouldn't. No. Well, I think anywhere. even in the last five years, it's changed, you know, because um, when I started, you didn't have, you know, 10 years ago, nine years ago, whatever, you didn't have YouTube stars then really, or, you know, there's, there's so many people just making their own content. Podcasts weren't as big as they are now. And now everyone can make their own content and put it out there. And actually, I feel like a dinosaur that I, you know, I don't know where to start with that stuff. Um, so I think in some ways, if I'd left it any later, it just, I would have had to go. <laughs> but no, it's good to, you know, it, it is, I think when I started doing stand-up, there was lots of people who had a life experience mm. and then come back to it. So there were guys who'd worked on the docks and there was guys who'd worked, you know, in proper, in like jobs as lawyers or doctors or whatever, and then become stand-ups. Yeah. And now a lot of 20-year-olds are starting doing stand-up, which was sort of what I was doing, I suppose. Yeah. But you don't have any life experience. Well, I, I, do, I, remember I, I was, do wonder how relatable, like you... you when you're 20, you're sort of relatable to other 20-year-olds to a certain extent. But, you know, how much is, oh, I was at another gig and I, you know, was on another bar, a train or I was on a, you know, yeah. on the M6 on a Friday night. You're like, well, most 20-year-olds aren't doing that. <laughs> you know, so it does make you wonder. I'm, I'm quite glad I had some stuff in the bank to, to bring to, yeah. you know, to talk about. And you about. don't know who you are, do you, when you're 20, really? Anyone 20 in here? Probably not. Of course not. It. Look at them. Uh, <laughs> You don't know, you know. I, that's, I remember. I still think, don't know who I, I am. Remember, I don't. Well, no, no comedian knows who they are. <laughs> so they're pretending to be someone else. But uh, yeah, it's. Oh, I should say that I did. I didn't mention that. the reason I was worried. I just in case anything happens. The reason I was suddenly worried about wearing the suit is what <laughs> I remembered the, the last time I'd the, I stopped wearing it because the fly just keep on kept on coming down. <laughs> so I just like to. Walk. Angela, you about that in the dressing if, room, and I was like, "Are you just preempting your yeah, Me Too moment if, right if now?" My, if my penis pops out, it's just, it's not. <laughs> if I don't come during a podcast, <laughs> I am always. I'm 42, I'm I'll always take what I can get, <laughs> Just in my pants, it's all that. If they can't stop you coming in your pants, can they, mate? They can't stop that. On your own, not touching anyone, not just on your own. When they stop that, then we're in trouble, aren't we? Some booze there from the people who don't want that stopped, I think, is, the, is, that, is my only inference. Um, so, um, yeah, some, I, was, I can't remember who I was talking to. It might have been uh, Professor Alice Roberts, or it might have been one of the uh, 
No such thing as a fish, guys. Mm -hmm. He's told me you're an expert on nuclear bunkers. Is this... Expert's a strong word. Well, I've got a little obsession yeah. with nuclear bunkers. I love concrete things. Right. I think when I grew up, you know, in the 70s and 80s, when I was a kid, everything was made of concrete. My school was, the block of flats I lived in, what our playgrounds were, you know, everything was. So that, that sort of real nostalgia of concrete thing. And then when I discovered that there were 1,500 nuclear bunkers in this country, I wanted to find them. Right. And um, I've done gigs in them. There's some massive ones out there. I mean, I could nerd on about this for eight. I was a bit worried Please about do. being nerdy, but then I looked at you. It's going to be fine, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> It'll be all right. How many uh, have you been in of the 1,500 nuclear bunkers? Oh, I must have been at least 20. Yeah. Some of them are, are derelict now and you can't get in. But I find them all the time because they were sort of dotted along the countryside. I, I went, my, my fella is not interested in them at all. <laughs> but he loves a country walk. And we, um, every, every year in Edinburgh, we go on my day off, we'll, he'll book a little surprise B&B out in the countryside somewhere. We'll go out and, you know, and we went out on this ramble and I just literally just rambled across a nuclear bunker in the <laughs> undergrowth. I just spotted the ventilation shot. He's like, oh, for fuck's sake, we can't even go on a country walk without you just finding a nuclear bunker. <laughs> What do you think? Do you, do you worry? Do you, are you concerned about nuclear war? Or? Oh, no, no. I mean, uh, this isn't a, a, you know, I don't love them because I think I'm going to head to one if the worst happens. If the worst happens, I'm going to head to ground zero. That's because, you know, life after a nuclear war is not going to be. No, just get it done. Yeah. Get it done. Cyanide pill, whatever. Yeah. Well, are there none of the, the, the bunkers that you think this would be a nice place to. Have you been in one? <laughs> no, I haven't been. I've <laughs> never been in one. No, I think, um, I mean, they've, they've got sort of dormitories, you know, so yeah. the, even the big ones, it's, you sleep, and they don't have, um, so they're built for 400 people, but they've okay. only got like uh, 100 beds. So you do hot, a, a hotbed system. So, yeah, this isn't putting you off, is it? Yeah. <laughs> Just means good. the bedding never gets washed. As soon as one person gets out, yeah. you get in. Four people in a bed, that's all right. That's all right. For, <laughs> you have to repopulate the earth. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> so you did, you, did do, uh, you did do a show about how to survive a nuclear apocalypse, didn't you, on the radio with John Oh, Rob no, I did, I did a thing on Radio 4 about Cold War secrets, and okay. I had uh, John Robbins came on, and, and we talked about... Uh, he's obsessed with... He's like a more on the prepper end of things, you Is know, he? nut job. Yeah, I love yeah. him, but he's a nut job. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so we talked about his plans for surviving nuclear apocalypse and I, I sort of thought he was joking when he says on his radio show that he'd planned it he's not we had to cut so much <laughs> out it was um yeah he knows he knows what to in fact if you're wondering what to do in the nuclear apocalypse follow john robbins is okay. my he knows where he's going and there what isn't he's doing. very long though is there between finding out it's happening I, do you think they would tell us if it was about to happen or do you think i don't know now i don't know like uh, uh, back in the cold war you know you had the four minute warning yeah was the thing. Um, but now, weapons are so much more advanced than they were then. But even if they had four minutes, I don't think they'd tell us. Would I don't they, think they would. what's the point? Yeah. Oh, what are you going to do in that four minutes? I know what you'd do in that four <laughs> minutes, but... What are you going to do in the other three minutes? Those are, um... <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I that was cheap. I'm sorry. It's I all right. Cheap's it. good. <laughs> um... I'm going to ask you an emergency question straight at the back because we're, you know, these people have come uh, to a tour show. Yeah. And I'm going to go early in the book because you, you know, this is old school <laughs> for the, for the <laughs> provinces. Um, <laughs> the provinces of the provinces, let's face it, we're in hope. So, um, uh, would you rather be a cow or a badger? I'd rather be a badger, got better hair. Okay. Yeah. 
good answer. And underneath this, I look like a badger. Under yeah. the red, pretty much now, yeah. It's definitely black and white stripes in there. Uh, have you ever seen a ghost? Never, because they don't exist, Rich. Well. <laughs> I think on, I just heard one in there. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. Oh, shit, shit. I really want to. That's the thing. My tour support, Phil Gerrard. Yeah, is um, a ghost. He, he, no. hey, is he here? No, um, he is absolutely desperate to see a ghost, but doesn't believe in them. But he's desperate to see one. Yeah, and wherever we go, if we go into a really old theatre, while I'm on stage doing my show, he'll come back up and he'll show me where he's gone under the stage and filmed. And like, <laughs> can you see anything? Can you see? It's like, no, Phil, because they don't exist. But, there yeah. are, often are in theatres, aren't there? So, you know, yeah. I went to the only place I felt a little bit eerie, but I think it was just, I went to uh, the Winter Gardens in Morecambe, which was the. Uh, venue where Eric Morecambe started, Laurel and Hardy played there. It's a derelict shell now because somebody in the 70s burnt it down as an insurance job. And um, John Richardson, being a Morecambe local, is part of, they're trying to restore it, but it's taken okay. a long time. And he, every year, does a big show there. And they basically, it's sort of, there's no roof on it, but they just hire in a load of seats and, and do it to raise money for a hospice. And, um, and I did it one year and they took, it was me and him and Matt Ford, they took us sort of on the little tour and took us underneath the stage and I think it was actually just that Matt Ford was really winding us up. It was what was actually happening. But that's the only time I've ever gone a bit like, oh, this is a bit eerie. I'd imagine Matt Ford is terrified of ghosts. I don't yeah, know if I asked him. He's, he's just yeah. scaredy cat. Yeah, it's all he'd mouth. He'd, he'd, just, he'd be mouth because he'd be going, oh, what if I see a ghost? I'll poo, I'll poo myself. <laughs> Have you seen a ghost? No, they no. don't exist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is this, this is a good question. Number six, I don't ask this very often. Isn't silver actually better than gold? Yeah, I hate gold. It's tacky. Yeah. Silver's yeah. way better than gold. Yeah, but don't tell them that because then they'll charge us more. <laughs> I love gold. Keep the gold expensive. Okay. Yeah. Good. <laughs> I think you've worked out there. All right, one, I'll go, I'm going to go on page one. Oh, it's not the question I thought it would be. That's lucky because that wouldn't have worked. Uh, would you prefer to have a hand made out of ham? <laughs> Just plan playing to the crowds. <laughs> I see what you've done arm, there. Or an armpit that dispensed sun cream. I don't do it very often, so enjoy it. I'm not going to give the second audience that pleasure. Don't you worry about that. <laughs> Fuck them. Apart from the ones who come into both. The, re the really, really sad thing about this is I know that question. I already know my answer <laughs> before you even asked it. It's definitely the armpit that, that... Because I... Well, A, I don't eat meat, so... Yeah, but you could eat meat. That's the thing. So you could eat your own hand because no animal dies for it and yeah, it grows back, so you still have a hand. I get it, but... I, I also, I, um, I burn very easily. I've got very pale skin. You're looking at yeah. me because of a story I know you're going to bring up. But I, I do sunburn really easily. <laughs> and, um, so if I could have factor 50, would it be factor... Like, it'd have to be a high factor sun yeah, you cream. Can, you choose the factor, but then you can't that change the That would save me so much money because I can't leave the house in the summer without covering myself. In fact. Okay. My mum said to me, she went, oh, yeah, you do burn easily, so you redheads do, don't you? <laughs> it's not my natural hair colour. <laughs> you gave birth to me, mum, remember? This is... You're right, when I got my hair dyed, it was a mistake to get the matching skin graft. You're right, yeah. Brilliant. So, talking of uh, skin being burnt... Yes. Your skin has been burnt. It has, I'm brilliant at this. I'm brilliant at this, brilliant this job. Come on, that was good. You liked it. <laughs> I, um... Both of them are... I think I might have seen two ghosts in the front row. So... <laughs> <laughs> what happened? What happened? So I, I had a bit of an accident with a, a hot water bottle and got third degree burns on my tits. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not going to show you my tits. I'll show you just the bit there is still quite red. It was, that, it was about six weeks ago now that I did it, but that's the bit that's not badly burnt. The bit that is, is um, 
Yeah, it's pretty grim. <laughs> <laughs> Only I could get third degree burns on my tits. It's a pretty. <laughs> I mean, I did as it was happening. I did think, well, that I'm going to get at least ten minutes out of this. Yeah. So. Well, that's it's always the thing as a comedian. Yeah. How, however bad it is, even in the moment. Yeah. You think. Oh, it was so, the whole thing was so, I mean, it was so insane. I was at home on my own when it happened and I was just, I was pouring the boiling water into the hot water bottle, which apparently you're not supposed to do, but everyone does. And, um, and it just sort of gurgled and fountained up, but it right. went over my face as well. So all I could think, we're not the face. So I, <laughs> so I put a cold tap on and put my head under for about 10 minutes. And it was then I realised that I was wearing a jumper and it had soaked through. Ooh. It was on my, so I took the jumper off got myself in a cold shower. Now, I used to be a nurse, right? So I know sort of what to do. And I, um, but I was at home on my own. I knew I needed to get to a and &E. I knew it was that bad. Right. But I knew I couldn't drive myself there. And I didn't want to call an ambulance because I, I was, you know, could walk. And so, uh, and my boyfriend was on his way home from work, so he's going to be another hour. So I actually, uh, I phoned my boyfriend, who then phoned Phil Gerrard, who lives not far. So he came, he's my hero that night. He came and picked me up, bless him. And, um, but by this time, I'd come out of the shower and, and I'd wrapped myself in cling film, because that's what you're supposed to do yeah. with a burn, because it's sterile and doesn't have any bits that can get in a burn. So I wrapped myself in cling film, put a dressing gown on, and Phil turned up. And, you know, I'm not looking my best, I think it's fair to say. And uh, <laughs> puts me in the car. We drove up to A&E, and it was absolutely rammed. You know, it was a Tuesday night, but it was so rammed. It's almost like the government are trying to destroy the NHS. And um, I went up there, and uh, this never, ever happens to me. Right? I'm not somebody who gets recognised, I'm not on telly enough for that to happen and I am, the, if you know the Royal Sussex Hospital, I was up there and the reception is right in the waiting room uh, and it's rammed, right, and I walk in and the receptionist, I'm, I've got my tits wrapped in cling film I'm soaking wet, wearing a dressing gown and the receptionist went, you're on Mock the Week, aren't you? <laughs> and the whole waiting room just went well, I've never, I've feel, I couldn't look at Phil Gerald was just pissing himself. And it was like, that, it just, that never happened. Why now? Why now? So, um, yeah, that happened. And, uh, yeah. Will you recover fully or is this... this I'll probably have some scars. Yeah. So I, I had to go up to, um, to the Burns unit at East Grinstead and I've sort of been treated by them and they are brilliant. So if anyone from the Burns unit at East Grinstead is listening, thank you. Um, but, I mean, it, it's all very undignified because it's literally... The burns are on my, across my nipples. Yeah. Right? And the worst one... I, I mean, I have to do this to show you, but the worst one's sort of down... It's like in the shape of a Nike swoosh. Um, <laughs> She's improved my sex life no end. It really has. She puts the idea of just do it into my boyfriend's head. But um, because the scar tissue's so thick, the nurse was like, she had to show me how to massage it to stop it scarring too much. It was like, you've got to massage it for 10 minutes a day. Sure, sure. This, I mean, I can't be, I can't be orgasming for 10 minutes a day. I've got shit to do. And... Yeah, so that's really dignified. I feel really dignified when I get out of a shower and massage E45 cream into my tits for four, <laughs> 10 minutes. Do you think the burns unit people slightly resent the fact that your burn isn't really a proper burn? Yeah. From a I hot mean, water bottle. I mean, people have come in with proper, been in fires, accidents. Well, a friend of mine, I don't know, do you know crashes. when... There's a comedian, Benji Waterhouse, I don't know if you right, know, who's a, psych he's a psychiatrist. Right. But he's got a friend that he did his medical training with who is now a plastic surgeon who specialises in hot water bottle burns. It's that common, yeah. So I'm just lucky I didn't need a skin graft or anything, but apparently it's really... I mean, mine are in the bin. Put them in the bin, get yourself one of those little lavender heat packs put in the microwave. 
You're going to have to do like a public information for well, about the dangers. Jeremy of... Vine's people <laughs> got in touch. Like, do you want to come on Jeremy Vine's show? So, no, I, do I look like Lynn Fallswood? No, I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to be the voice of burnt tits. I don't this could be it. need that in my life. So this, I did. Yeah. This could be your man draw. This could yeah. be it. <laughs> So yeah, I'll just 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 if everyone here tells a friend not to use a hot water bowl, then we'll get the message out that way without me having to debase myself on radio too. <laughs> well, it's interesting because my guest are also talking to in, in Brighton, uh, Stephen Grant's been in a terrible uh, terrible bike accident. Yeah, well, so we've got two two scarred, permanently yeah. scarred guests. He's, well, I won't, uh, he'll tell you about his scar. Yeah, but he's he done will. a great thing with his scar. So okay, well, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely will ask him about there that. Um, and uh, well, it's. Uh, it must be very exciting for you to be... Uh, on, you're now regular on the News Quiz and you're mm. on shows like Mot the Week. Yeah. And I know you were a big fan of uh, the News Quiz and yeah, uh, Linda he... Smith, especially before, yeah. before you were a, a comedian yourself. So th that's got to be pretty exciting to get to that. Into it's that so surreal. It's so surreal because I... Like, I remember when I won the New Comedy Award in 2011 and I did an interview with Chortalk and... Um, I have to do that. And uh, I did an interview with Chortle and they said, you know, if you win, what's your, what's your biggest ambition? And everyone else in the final was sort of said to be on live at the Apollo. Or to, you know, I was like, I want to be on the news quiz. I want to be on the news quiz. And uh, that week, a producer from the news quiz contacted me and asked if I wanted to do some writing on it, which right. as far as I was concerned, that meant I'd made it. I did a day, you know, writing on the news quiz. That, that was fine. And then a few years later, I finally got to be a panellist on it. And it's just, I mean, it's insane. I can't, I sit there... You know, and God bless him, I'd very often be sat next to Jeremy Hardy. Um, yeah, and, and I just couldn't believe where, you know, being treated like one of the gang, you know. They even yeah. called the seat next to Jeremy, they started calling it Barnsley's seat, because I'm deaf in my right ear. They sit me with my left ear to the host. Right. So, you know, started calling it Barnsley's seat. And I just, it's insane that I'm part of that. I keep expecting the tap on the shoulder. <laughs> it's been a terrible mistake, you're not a comedian. Um, but it hasn't come it's yet. It's quite a tough show to do. I've done it a couple of times, and mm. it's not my forte, I don't think. But it's because it's, it's coming up with the, the. Obviously, you get a bit of chance to prepare. Well, you know what's the news is anyway, so you can prepare. Yeah. You can prepare yeah. in the case, but you get a little bit of uh, yeah. a, a nudge in what's going to come up. But so you, you just. How much time do you spend? Because I didn't. I, I thought I'll just wing this and see. How oh no! I I'm a, my agent always says about me. Barnsley does her homework. Yeah. Like I'm a proper. <laughs> I, I like to prepare things and I'm not a natural improviser um, so I like to know what I'm going to in something like that yeah. you know have an idea of what my thoughts are and, and also I'm terrified of saying something that could be taken the wrong way or get myself in trouble you know um, so I do like to know roughly what I'm going to say pretty, uh, and you know have a couple of gags in my head for, yeah. um, but you know it's been hard the last couple of years because if I have to write one more fucking joke about Brexit I'm <laughs> You're going to have to write a lot, I am more, gonna jokes write a lot more jokes about Brexit. It's so tedious. It's so tedious. And when I was doing News Jack, you know, you can't win because you'd, you know, every week, particularly my first episode of News Jack that I hosted was the day that Donald Trump was inaugurated. Right? So I sort of went through that first two years. And, um, and every week, obviously, it'd be Brexit and Trump, Brexit and Trump. They were the main stories in the headlines. And you couldn't win because if you didn't do it, people would go, well, you're not doing the main stories. You did do it. It's oh, not this fucking. But you like, well, I can't help what's going on in the world. You know, it's just, it's so tedious. But you're very good at. I saw you do. Uh, I saw a clip of the roast battle you did. Oh yeah, <laughs> you're a very strong joke. Because a lot of those, it's you know people who know each other quite well. I'm not saying you don't know, but who just are picking on personal stuff. But you, but you kind of got really nailed that with. with Thanks. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Matt and I are good friends. Yeah. So although Matt Richardson is 
years younger than me. He's like my comedy little brother because we started at the same time. And in fact, in 2012, we did a two-hander at the Edinburgh Festival together. So we are really close. And I, I was really nervous about doing roast battle because it's not really my thing, you know, just to be mean to people for the sake <laughs> of it. And then they'd asked Matt to do it. And Matt basically said, I'll do it if I can do it with Angela. I was like, oh, okay. And I was quite nervous, but we sat down and we just sort of had a, you know, where our red lines were. Yeah. <laughs> so you can, yeah, you can mention my dead dad, whatever, that's fine, but not this. And, um, you know, and then we went away. And, and I knew, and he knew that we're both quite thick skinned. Like, you'd have to work really hard for him to actually upset me. Yeah. Um, so we could really have fun with it. And because it, I think that show would be really hard to do. I know some people do it with people they barely know, yeah. and I just couldn't do that. Like, I needed to know I was safe and that. You know, we gave each other a big hug as soon as it was over and it was all fine. Oh, and it was a lot of fun. And also, because I don't really do much dark or horrible <laughs> stuff, it was really nice to be able to delve into that bit. You know, you can't do that on the news quiz. No. <laughs> you know? But, you, you know, you're, so, you're very good at the... I mean, I'm not good at gags. I know you... I heard you when you did uh, get interviewed by Stuart and it went <laughs> out. You know, you, you work very hard writing, writing, writing mm. pages, pages, stuff to get some jokes. I, you know, if I write one gag a year... I'm very happy with that. <laughs> I'll, I'll then... I wish I could be more freewheeling. I do. <laughs> it, it comes from a place of anxiety because I, and I think I said this on Stu's podcast, I'm so nervous that the next laugh's not going to come. I just have to pack it with as many gags as I can to give it a chance for, because, you know, the longer they're not laughing, the more I'm sweating and... But if you can do it, if you, can, you, know, you are topping all the time. You, you create a joke and you top it and top it mm. and top it. And then that gets that lovely... If people are laughing at something and then something else makes them laugh, that's a, as a comedian, that's a... A great thing to have yeah. as an audience member. It's great just to get to that point where you're sort of slightly helpless with laughter because because too many jokes are coming at once. Doesn't happen in my show, so um, <laughs> you're safe with me from that. It's one of my main selling points. Um, um, well, let's talk about your dad a little bit because I know you've done a show again partly about your dad. Yeah. And your dad was quite a character. That is the quite, word that everyone uses. <laughs> yeah, a pervert. I think is the word. That, um, <laughs> I love my dad, but he was not a conventional dad. No. Um, I mean, he, I, I say that, he was to me. Like, I, you know, he was actually quite prudish with me. I was his little girl, you know. But he ran a sex shop for a living. He was a swinger. Uh, very liberal. Yeah. Um, you know, free love and all that. Child of the 60s, whatever. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and so I never had a... I mean, my parents divorced when I was nine. And I don't know how they were ever married to each other. They're so different. Um, and my mum's lovely, but just quite, she came, you know, from a big Catholic family. She's one of nine and quite sheltered. Yeah. And uh, I think they just got married young. And then my dad discovered this other world. <laughs> and my mum was, um, yeah, not really on board with that, I think. <laughs> it's fair to say. So he went off and had his fun, you know. And, and uh, I always say about my dad, I love him dearly. He was the best dad in the world. Shitty husband, but a brilliant dad, you know. And yeah. we, were, we were best mates. We were really close. Um, because, you know, he was still my dad. He was still my, you know, growing up, he, he wasn't, he didn't give a shit about anything, but he knew how to have fun and knew, and I think consequently, because I was never pushed, there was never any pressure to do well because my dad had dropped out of school, my mum didn't finish school with any exams, so anything I did was a bonus, yeah. you know, and the fact I went to university was, oh, that was enough for them to be, you know, they didn't need me to do any more. And it just meant I didn't have any pressure, and so I learned about fun, with my dad. And, and in fact, it was the other way around. Like, I was the nerd. He used to call me Lisa Simpson. Right. And um, I remember one night I was in a pub. I was about uh, 16, 17, and I was um, in a pub with my friends doing a bit of underage drinking, like you do. And uh, my dad knew which pub I'd gone to. 
And him and his friends were doing a charity pub crawl that night. And my dad uh, was dressed as Homer Simpson. And he act, uh, like promised me he wouldn't come into the pub. He knew I was going to be here. With my of course he did. Of course he came in there. <laughs> and I just went straight out into the loos and hid from him. People kept coming. Your dad's in there. He's brilliant. And I was just going, this is fucking going to kill him. I, but his whole life was about humiliating me. He loved it. He, he, um, he used to do things like he was a, it's a true story. When I was 14. So he was a type 1 diabetic. So he used to inject himself twice a day. He had been since he was a small child. And he used hypodermic needles, so he couldn't get on with the modern newfangled pen things. So he'd always have hypodermics. And um, when I was 14, he went, he, him and my mum used to alternate going to my parents' evenings at school. And I was a really studious child. It was, that was my way of rebelling, was to be a good girl, you know, studious. And he'd gone to my parents' evening and uh, this form tutor, Mrs. Wren, she was lovely. She was a textiles teacher and very lovely. And uh, he went round to all my teachers. And that, he said to me before he went off, he said, oh, these parents are really boring. They're always blowing smoke up your ass." And off he went. <laughs> and then he presented my form tutor at the end of the evening with a hypodermic needle and a bit of tinfoil and said, I found this in Angela's bag. What's it mean? <laughs> yeah. And, I, I, and she was just like, I don't understand. He was like, well, I don't understand. I, you know, <laughs> she didn't know him. She didn't know what he was like. And he just played a blinder, didn't ever... Next day I got called in to the head of year and I had to say that's my dad's idea of a joke. <laughs> you know, and there, was, there was a letter sent home. But um, yeah, that was the sort of thing. He did it to me just before he died. We were up at the marina. My dad loved the marina because he liked looking at all the boats that he'd never be able to afford. And uh, we got up, it was Father's Day, 2008, and we'd gone up to the marina to look at the boats and we went for lunch up there somewhere. And... Uh, I used to, if we were going out for dinner together, I'd put his needles and insulin in my handbag. And we were just leaving the restaurant. And as I stood up, one of his needles fell out of the, my handbag onto the floor. Packed. It was Father's Day. It was rammed. And my dad just looked at you and went, you promised me you'd stopped and stormed out. <laughs> it just left me in this restaurant. And I had to pick it up and put it back in my bag and leave. God love him. <laughs> So you were, you were, again, on Stuart's podcast, I heard you talking about, you were, you were like, the best at English and, and maths in your, you were good at spelling and maths. Yeah, I was a real little boff at school, yeah. I was, yeah. And uh, I had to have my own spelling test at primary school. I was that twat who... <laughs> and I, my mum says I was like it from... The, I was dying to learn to read, and I still, to this day, am a voracious reader. I love reading. And, and my uncle was a headmaster, and he'd said to my mum and dad, don't teach her to read before she goes to school, because then they'll teach her in a different way and she'll get confused, you know, wait. So my parents had kept saying to me, you'll be able to read a book when you go to school. So I thought, day one, I'm going to be able to pick up War and Peace. That's, <laughs> you know, and apparently I went in and, um, you know, day one at reception class at primary school, you're just playing with toys. And I apparently stood up and said, well, this is all very well, but where's my book? <laughs> like, when are we learning to read? <laughs> yes, I've come here to learn to I've read. I've come here for a book. That's what I was told. So I, I've been that kid. Yeah. I think I was, I was interested in it, though. My dad was my headmaster, so of that's course, yeah. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I think that... Uh, well, you talk about it in the in, in Stuart's podcast again. It's very good, Stuart's podcast, isn't it? But you talk about that need for, you know, the, the need for approval mm. and the, the, when you get when you get praised. I'm a praise addict, yeah, which for sure. Which is then what leads to being a comedian as well. Yeah. But I was, you know, I was the same. I was very nerdy about studying and if I got something I liked, I would, I'd rush ahead with it. You know, if there was anything with cards or books that you could work ahead in, I would oh, work yeah. all the way to the end. Yeah. I, I, I got... Like the maths cards you used yeah, to get, I, I SMP cards. Yeah, I was obsessed with those yeah, maths yeah, yeah. cards. 
and got like to probably oh you know I was about ten years old and got to O level A level yeah. stuff from those because just because I loved the you know the approval of the teachers. It's absolutely, and I I think it really dawned on me how much of a praise addict I am. Yeah. Like I, I oh, looking back, it's obvious. But I, as an adult, I learned to swim. I never learned to swim as a child. So about five years ago now, I took swimming lessons at Crystal Palace, and I just got onto it, got into it really quick because I had this lovely teacher, Jill, and I realised I was practising because I wanted to please Jill. Like, I didn't want to let her down. And I'd go to my class every week. Look what I can do now, Jill. I did, I did the practice she told me to do. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm that prick. That's, yeah, so that... And I guess that's sort of what makes a comic, isn't it? Like, why else would we be up here if we didn't want praise? Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, no one likes you at school because you're like that, so you have to yeah, exactly. find someone. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. I can't remember who said it, and I think it might have been Stephen Fry, but that thing of... Like, the thing that makes a comic is somebody with crippling low self-esteem plus a desire to show off. Yeah. You know, that's such a weird combination of things to have. Because I'm, you know, I suffer from anxiety. I've been hospitalised with anxiety when I was younger. Where, and now I'm doing this. People who knew me at school can't believe that I do this for a living. It's like, well, that girl who used to hide behind her hair and wouldn't, you know. It is an odd, you know, but that, that's... Sometimes it strikes me when, you know, you're on stage... You know when you're well into a show and you know it and you, there's a voice in your head that starts tr trying to fuck you up. Oh, basically. God, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> and says, boy, if you forget how to breathe. Yeah. If you forget about that. I, what if you forget why, how to speak? That's why but, I can't um, meditate. Like, yeah. if anyone's thinking of coming up to me after the show and saying, have you tried meditation, I'll headbutt you. Because people say that all the time and they know you have anxiety. It's like, have you tried med All that happens when I try to meditate is I get anxious that I'm meditating wrong. <laughs> And it's like the little voice in my head just goes, oh, you're having some quiet time, <laughs> are you? Oh, well, let's go through all the shit things you've ever said and done in your life, shall we? And that's all that happened. I can't quieten my brain, so I've learned that my way of dealing with it is I have to keep it occupied. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. But I, it's that weird thing, I guess, when you're on stage and you suddenly start thinking about how weird it is as you're on stage. Oh, which yeah, yeah, yeah. Which doesn't happen all that often, because you don't, but when it does happen, it's really fucking freaky. Yeah. I just started thinking about what we're doing now. And it's freaking... These it's people have paid to come weird. and see us talk. I used to be... A, like, I, I used to watch Fist of Fun, you know. I remember going to Edinburgh Festival in 1995 and watching your show with Stu. And now I'm fucking... How the fuck did this happen? You know, and I, I have to do that all the time. I'm sort of pinching myself and just going, well, well that happened. Like, it's um, Mark Steele lives in Brighton. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've got to become good mates with him. And sort of... But every now and then you're like, well, I, I used to buy tickets and go watch your shows and now we're having a Sunday lunch. You know, it's, he came to my house on Christmas Day. Like, what the fuck's going on? Going, Fuck off, Mark, it's Christmas. <laughs> yeah, he won't leave me alone, bitch, help. I'll get rid of him. He's in my house right now. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, this, it is, that's, it's, it's a it's freaky thing. All of it's pretty freaky. Yeah. I don't think it's really happening. I think, do you ever think that you've, you're already, like, very old and in, you've got dementia and you're in a home. <laughs> yeah. and oh. there maybe the stuff you're thinking, maybe it did happen or maybe it didn't happen, but, you know, there's no way of knowing. I, that deja vu could be just a little bit in your brain going, this has happened already. You, you've lived yeah. this one. Ah, shut up! Yeah. Uh, it'd be all right, wouldn't it, if that was it? The thing is, if I'm that. feeling it now, I don't care. You know, there's all sorts of theories out there where we're in some sort of computer simulation yeah. and you go, great, I'm true. having a nice time in it, so... Crack on. I think that's true. I think that's true. I don't think it can be... When you think of the chances of being alive, uh, they're so small. Yeah. I mean, not it just even, like, you, your sperm making the egg. But My sperm? Yeah. 
infinitesimal. The sperm that you were <laughs> before you were joined together with an egg, yeah. that sperm meeting that egg, 600 million to one just for that. Your parents had to have sex. It sounds that they weren't very... Well, I say, which for my parents is hard to imagine. <laughs> but, you know, they had to have sex at that exact moment and yeah. that exact sperm had to get through. And then that's all the way through history and all the chances where, you know, it's just impossible that we're Is here. anyone else having an existential crisis It's impossible. Right now? It's, it's a really good conversation for a girl with so, anxiety. So, therefore, we can only be, like, characters in a computer game. <laughs> the only thing that makes sense. And we're living in the, you know, sort of the best time to be alive as a human being. We haven't had to go through all the shit that the pretend people in the computer game had to go through <laughs> to get here. You know, we've got these luxurious lives. Yeah. Even with the levels of anxiety we have, it's still nothing like that a tiger might come and bite my head off any minute. Yeah. Could still happen. Watch out. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's, none of this is real. So that's fine. So don't worry doesn't about matter, it. Doesn't matter, does it? None of it matters. Nothing matters. <laughs> nothing matters. <laughs> And, you know, things happen, you think, yeah, this is the kid who's playing this game deliberately fucking thing. Like, Brexit, Trump. <laughs> the kid's just got bored. He's thought, what if we do... I play Civilization. Occasionally, I'd nuclear bomb Birmingham just to see what happens. <laughs> that's, that's a kid just doing that, isn't it? See what happens. Oh, yeah, it fucks it up for them. I don't care. Hey. <laughs> got my proper life, but then is he in a video game as well? He hasn't thought about that, has he? And then he's a video game making us a video game, and where does it end? And then this, not yeah. Interesting, isn't it? I've blown your mind, haven't I, mate? Blown you, you never thought anything. What if you're the only real human and everyone else is robots, mate? You never thought that, have you? How <laughs> about that? Be good, wouldn't it? Could be good fuck them. <laughs> Sorry, I went, I went off on a... Another, another... Well, this is an interesting thing to talk to you. Goodness, time's flying by. God, I go on, don't I? No, it's gone very, it goes terrifyingly fast, which again makes me think it's a video game because <laughs> there's, no, there's no way the 45 minutes has passed. Um, you wrote an article for The Guardian about a few years ago, which got a lot of uh, publicity about, yeah. about uh, not seeing ugly people on TV and, yeah. uh, or people who are deemed unattractive and yeah. putting yourself in that, in that yeah. camp. Okay, well, I, yeah, I mean, sort what of, didn't I mean, help was I wrote the article. So it, it was basically about how, you know, ugliness being portrayed on TV and for, is, is not ugly. You know, mm. ugly Betty was not ugly. She was just wearing glasses. Um, and, and how you don't see people that look like me um, or... And I'm not saying... But before, this is an awful... It's a really hard conversation to have because... I ended up in hospital when I was younger because I had such crippling low self-esteem and particularly about the way I looked that it doesn't matter whether you objectively think I'm ugly or not. That doesn't matter. It's what's in here sure. that matters, right? And I genuinely believe that I was hideous. You know, I used to... I, when I was properly ill, I used to apologise to people on public transport for having to look at me. I mean, I, you know, I, that, I was ill. And, um, and my point was that you don't see... It's not... That sort of dysmorphia has not helped by the fact that everyone... You're being told that these people are ugly when yeah, they're yeah. clearly not, you know. And that the full range of people aren't represented. And, and, you know, there's lots of people doing good work in that area now, like Jamila Jamil, and, uh, you know, it's brilliant. But this was in 2013 I wrote this article, and it was off the back of a few things that had happened. And, um, and of course, people just read what they, you know, into it. So it was seen as me sort of somehow trying to get people to tell me I'm pretty. Yeah which, you know, was fundamentally misunderstanding the whole gist of the article. Or, uh, you know, then people are complaining that I, I wasn't ugly enough. You know, you can't... <laughs> you can't win. Um, 
you really can't. So, um, and obviously, you know, the it's it's just about representation, and it's yeah. just about and you know, everything's about you have to see it to be it, you know, and that's why now suddenly. We've got loads of women are doing comedy and it's brilliant because they're seeing it on their screens at last. They're seeing it in their comedy clubs at last, which even 10 years ago, when I started, I was still, for the first five years, was only ever the, the only woman on the bill. Yeah. You know, whereas now that's changing. And so more peop- women are at home watching Mot the Week and going, oh, look, they've got two now. Fucking hell, I can do this. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's all part of that representation. Thing. But, yeah, I've got a lot of shit for it. It's, it's really interesting. I, do, I remember seeing, you know, you, you, if you watch, like, old TV shows, mm. I remember seeing, like, an old, I think it might, I can't remember what it was about, but there was an old, like, discussion, arts discussion programme. It might have been about Life of Brian or something like that, but yeah. it was like, academics discussing stuff. And what it is, it's just normal people. It's not, it's, it's normal people who aren't the, the identikit, pretty or handsome you know, there, are, there are more ugly men on TV than there are ugly women. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But <laughs> thank God for that. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, I still have a chance. But, uh, but you know, it's, it was just sort of shocking to see regular people with, the, like, you know, the academics from the 1970s who weren't, you know, doing their hair and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And who had slightly squidgy faces or, you know, yeah. w- looked a bit weird in some ways. But they were actually just normal people. They don't look weird. And they don't look weird when you go out and look at the members of the public in front of us. I mean, look at these. Yeah, Christ, guys. <laughs> or just walk down the street, you know. And so yeah. and it, that's weird, the way your brain, one's brain has flipped to such an extent that it almost seems funny to see someone who looks normal on TV. On TV, yeah. Rather than thinking, isn't it fucking weird that we only see one type of yeah. person on TV? Clearly, it's not a job that's, you know... Down. It's nice if you look nice, but it's not down to looking nice. No, and also there is such a gender divide in it that, you know, yeah. Piers Morgan proves you don't have to be pretty to be on TV. <laughs> so, but you do if you're a woman, uh, you know, and it's that older man, younger woman partnership that goes, you know, throughout presenting, throughout history. It's, it's just not seeing yourself represented. There's certain TV jobs I've been told I'm too old for at 42, you know. And I think, well... That's all very well, but 20-year-olds aren't watching telly. Exactly. My mum's watching telly, so who's representing her? You know, how many women in this? My mum's 60, she'll be 69 um, next month. I don't know why I did that so much. Do you think you have to spend the whole of that year just going, I'm 69, wait, wait, wait. See, I'm my dad's daughter, I can't (laughs) It's in there somewhere, the jeans. And... um, uh, yeah, you know, she's active, she has a good yeah. social life and that. Where's her on telly? Yeah. You know, if I'm too old, then what's for her? But again, I think that's interesting because I think the TV people are so stupid about it, they haven't realised that they essentially are in a dead medium. Well, they're trying to capture <laughs> the youth to, and the youth yeah. aren't interested. But they need to, they need, you know, they're actually, there's this, as Brexit shows, yeah. there is a huge <laughs> audience... Uh, but they're for, ignoring. For people. Yeah, so it's, you know, it's, it's kind of crazy that that's, that's the case, yeah. but... Yeah, I mean, not that YouTube is, is any better in this. We self-selected, though. That's what's sort of interesting. And, and that's why, you know, if, you, if, if there is a programme or a film that is re- represents it the way you want to be represented, yeah. then you've got to support that thing, you know, because actually people are, people are you know, everything in this business is run by the money of it, really. Yeah, absolutely. So if you start, stop going to see a certain type of film or person... Or comedian or whatever, and start seeing a different one, then that will become popular. Yeah. So it's 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 just you know, economics at the end of the day. Um, and another thing I want to talk to you again, another slightly uh, well, not slightly, another serious subject was the, the work you've done um, with the the get the getting home. Uh, oh, the home safe uh, home collective. Safe yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Well, that was, um, so, gosh, must be about a year ago now, maybe just over a year ago, uh, a comedian was, uh, in Melbourne, uh, Eurydice Dixon was going home from, a, she was a, a, a sort of open mic comedian just yeah. starting out her career in Melbourne and was walking home after a gig one night and was raped and murdered on her way home from the gig. And, you know, people ask why women don't do comedy. And I think one of the, the, the things that puts a lot of women off is that we spend a lot of time travelling about late at night, um, getting night buses. Getting, for the first six years I was on the circuit, I couldn't drive, I didn't have a car. Um, and, and, you know, I lived in London for a large chunk of that. So people would... You'd have a gig in Yorkshire somewhere and you'd get a lift back to London and I'd get dumped on the outskirts of London and have to make my way back to Crystal Palace at three in the morning, you know. And, um, and it just didn't seem fair that we were, you know, uh, even now I've got a car, very often it's in a multi-story car park that by the time I finish my show, I come out and it's deserted and yeah. I'm having to go back to the car on my own. Or, and th there's all these journeys that you make and you have to weigh up in your head, you know, I really want this job, I want to do it and I want to be, uh, I don't want to make a fuss because if you make a fuss, people don't book you because the thing about comedy is there's a million people in the line behind you to do every job you've got. So you don't want to make a fuss, you know. And then by not making a fuss, things don't get better and don't improve and people don't realise there's an issue. And then when that happens to you, um, there's a large sort of WhatsApp group of female comics. We all sort of chat to each other and support each other. And um, we were like, well, it's amazing, really, this hadn't happened before because we are often putting ourselves in these positions. And um, so the first thing that happened was we started talking to promoters after... Because then you had concrete, like, look, this has happened to someone now. We need to be careful. And uh, so more and more promoters... And it wasn't that they didn't care, it's just it hadn't occurred to them because most of the promoters are men. Yeah. You know, who... It doesn't bother them in the same way. Um, so most... You know, lots of promoters now will get you a taxi back to the hotel or, you know, walk, get someone to make sure they walk you to the station or to your car or whatever... Uh, it's just little things like that make such a big difference. Or, and I found other comics on the bill will now ask, you know, are you yeah. all right getting home? Whereas before, they just want to get off and, you know, which is fine, I'd get it, but now yeah. they just weren't aware. And, um, and the, the one place where we talked a lot about was, was at the Edinburgh Festival. You know, when you're starting out as a comic, Edinburgh is extremely expensive to go and do the Edinburgh Fringe. People often don't realise that if they're not performers, that, you know, you pay a fortune for accommodation for, to get there, for your venue to, you know, it takes a long time till you start making money in Edinburgh. And so, and, and the shows go on, the bars are open till 5am, the shows go on that late. And if you're an open spot comedian who's trying to make it, trying to get the stage time, you don't want to turn down anything you don't want to be the person that said no because they might not ask you again. Mm. And so very often in Edinburgh, you found, I, I would find myself walking home across the meadows at two in the morning, you know, with my keys between my fingers going, this doesn't feel safe. And, and, but... Not, again, not wanting to make a fuss. And so we decided, after what happened to Eurydice, we decided we need to do something to make sure that no one has to make that decision. And the Edinburgh Festival is the one place where we could do that. Because, um, unfortunately, I can't do it for every city in every country. Um, but in Edinburgh has a, you know, a huge amount of, of comics descend upon Edinburgh. And I wanted to make sure that no one ever has to go... Um, you know, I really want to do that gig, so fuck it, I'm going to make this unsafe journey. So we set up a fund, and we called it Home Safe Collective, and we just took donations, um, you know, so anyone could donate if they wanted to. We weren't pressuring anyone to donate. And uh, we raised about £5,000. 
And so we put that money in a taxi fund in Edinburgh. So we chose a taxi company in Edinburgh where all their drivers are police checked. And um, we put the money in that fund and we set up a system whereby if you are a vulnerable... Well, the way we, we phrased it, and again, we got shit for this because you can't, you know, you can't please everyone at the moment. But, well, A, we got shit because the press in Scotland started saying that we were suggesting that Edinburgh was unsafe. <laughs> which, you know, where's safe, for fuck's sake? You know, murders don't just happen. Anyway, that, that's a whole other... So we had to, at that point, go, right, we're not doing any press um, because they were just twisting it. So then we... Um, uh, did like a registration system for female performers. We sort of got the word out there by word of mouth, really, amongst in performer forums and things. And we said it was for women, non-binary people, uh, people who identify as women. Or And the other thing that we said was anyone who feels vulnerable. So we weren't saying it wasn't for men. You know, if you're a man and you feel vulnerable going home, we were not going to stop you signing up. But of course then it was all like, oh, you don't give a shit, men get attacked too. You know, it's like, this is not what we're... You know, again, that willful misunderstanding of you trying to do a good thing. And, um, but we, we set it up and it was a real success. We, um, uh, loads of people used it, uh, you know, and, and didn't abuse it, which was the other thing we were worried about, that yeah. people would take, you know, take the opportunity to, you, to take cabs everywhere and charge <laughs> it. On the, and we were willing to take that collateral damage, really. We thought, well, if it means one person gets home safely where they wouldn't, we'll take the hit. Yeah. Um, but people were really... And, and also, the other thing is, you know, a lot of people didn't want to sign up because they said, well, I can afford a taxi. It's like, yeah, but what if you're out one night and your purse gets nicked or, you know, you've forgotten to bring your... You, you still can be vulnerable if you've got money. So, you know, still use the service and just pop it back in the donations the next day if you feel bad about using it. Yeah. We wanted everyone to sign up. And, um, yeah, and it went... It, it was used and hopefully just made people feel a bit safer. We will never know whether it actually stopped anything happening, but as long as people feel safer, that's enough for me. Sure. And then we won the, uh, so the Edinburgh Awards, people gave us the panel prize um, for setting it up, which was, and the prize was £5,000, which means we now have the money to do it again this year. Brilliant. Just have to, <laughs> just keep winning the award and it'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's, and it's interesting, but you know, that, that's the kind of thing that, that should, that they should pay for that every year. That this, the award yeah, I mean, Melbourne Comedy Festival, obviously it was Melbourne where it happened. Yeah, yeah. And this year, Melbourne Comedy Festival announced they've set up their own, yeah. Similar scheme. And um, and I think, you know, chatting to Nika Burns, who sort of produces the Edinburgh Fringe, um, she was very keen, I think, A, for us to have that money so that we didn't have to fundraise for it. And I think, in the, you know, going forward next year and the year after, we'll probably set something up with the Fringe yeah. to make sure it's not just, you know... Because the other thing is, when you're trying to do a show in Edinburgh, trying to do the admin for that at the same time, and, yeah. you know, it was actually quite a lot that we took on. So if we can make that a thing that sort of runs itself for the future, then, you know, that'd be great. Yeah, it's brilliant. Well done. Um, <laughs> fantastic work. Right, well, um, oh, we, took, well we, won't, we won't finish on that note of you <laughs> being seeming like a nice person. Um, we'll, no, we can't we'll have find that. Find something else to pull apart. Are you going to be doing Edinburgh again this year? I'm not going this year. No. That's why I'm so relaxed right now. <laughs> uh, no, I'm not. I've decided to have a year out. Uh, I'll, I'll be going back next year. Okay. Um, so I do sort of two years on, one year off. It's my yeah, kind of pattern at the moment. That's yeah. probably a good idea. I yeah, did about yeah, yeah. 13 in a row. That was a mistake. I, do you uh, know I did, um, I did my show in 2017? I meant to tell you this. I don't know if I did tell you. Uh, I did a show called Fortitude because oh, I yes. turned 40. Yes. What I really wanted to call it was, oh, fuck, I'm the age Richard Herring was when he did, oh, fuck, I'm 40. <laughs> but my agent was like, uh, anyone under 30 is not going to know what you're banging on about. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's yeah, no forties. It's not as bad as fifty. No, it's. I love being in my forties. Yeah. So I do think the pressure's off. Like no one. A people have stopped asking me when I'm going to have kids. Brilliant. Yeah. They just assume I can't now. Great. If that's what they want to think. Fine. <laughs> um, and and you sort of get to your forties. You are the person you're going to. You're not. Const, you know, still sort of going. Well, who will I end up as? You're like, oh, what, this is it. And um, and I'm also like with Brexit and Trump and the rise of the far right and all of that going on. I'm not quite glad I'm near the end. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, fuck being a teenager now. Social media and the world. No, oh, fuck that. I'm, yeah. I, I had, you know, I had some of the good times. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> so you're feeling happy. I mean, you've settled in Brighton. You've bought. Bought a place in Brighton with your partner. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I say that in Brighton just in case, you know. It's a man, just but yeah. Oh, okay, right. um, <laughs> there are no homosexuals anywhere else, certainly not where I live. Um, <laughs> no, in Hertfordshire, we don't have them in Hertfordshire. I think there might have been one in London. Uh, <laughs> uh, and so that is, do you, do you think being settled and happy is good as a comedian or bad as a comedian? Well, I worried about it, to be yeah. honest, because, you know, so much of my shtick was about being a loser in love and being single and all of those things. And I remember my agent saying, when she went, oh, fuck, you're in love, aren't you? <laughs> you know, it was like, oh, yeah. And, um, but actually, luckily, my fella gives me a lot to work with. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and he doesn't mind me talking about our relationship and stuff. And, and um, yeah, I mean, I am settled in a way. We've just got a puppy, yeah. you know, so... Um, yeah, he but did you a little Valentine's Day thing with Cryptic oh, last Crossword year he Clues. did. That was so funny. He, um, yeah. So anyway, last year he was away snowboarding on Valentine's Day, what? and he's really not a romantic type at all. But he left me on a dressing table in the bedroom. He just left me what I thought was just a card, and I opened it. And we're because we're both nerds. We love cryptic crosswords, and he'd left me a cryptic treasure hunt around the flat, and he'd hidden my present. In a thing, and I was so because it's he's not a big gesture kind of guy. It was so out of character. I was really moved by it, really. <laughs> and so I took photos of it and like tweeted about it. And it sort of went a bit viral, and he's up a mountain. He had no idea, <laughs> and he was just getting texts from his friends going, "Thanks a lot, mate. Show us right up." Like, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, there were like magazine articles in the states about it, you know, yeah. and yeah, it's amazing. You only do one thing like that, fellas, in your life, and that's it. You're set. So yeah, that's it. Just think of you have to think of your own one. <laughs> for me, it was Ferrero Rocher chocolates. That's that worked for me. <laughs> now I have to do anything again. <laughs> but you know, he did it again this year. Uh, did he? <laughs> but he was there this year, and it was um, Valentine's Day was like two days after I'd done my burns, and so I was feeling really sorry for myself. Right. So, but if he does it again next year, I'm gonna be like, I'll think of something new, mate. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> And what's coming up next for you? Anything exciting in the pipeline? I'm on tour at the minute. Yep. So, um, touring my show Rose Tinted all around the place. So, yeah, my website, have a look on that if you want to come along. I'm doing Brighton in October. Um, and, yeah, just same old Mop the Week coming up. Yep. Yeah, and uh, see what happens. Fantastic. Well, I'm really glad things are going so well for you. It's a phenomenon. Ladies and gentlemen, Thank she's you. one of yours, Angela Vance. <laughs> Thank you very much. You've been lovely. Thank you for having me. I'll be there. I'll be in there in a second.
How do you like them Sky potatoes? <laughs> 